0: Well, welcome. hope you had a good day. Tonight we're continuing our study through the hallmarks of a biblical church. The hallmarks of a biblical church. I was reminded this past week of a story I heard of a man who plays the the bagpipes. And this particular man was a professional bagpipe player, and he played in a variety of venues all around his town. And one day he was asked by a local funeral director to play his bagpipes, for a funeral service. And uh, that was kind of common for him, so he thought that's fine. And specifically it was a graveside service the funeral director said, and it was going to be held for a homeless man who died without any family or friends. And the service was to be in what they called the Pauper's Cemetery out in the outside of town in the back country of the hills of Kentucky where this gentleman lived. Well, sadly, on the way to the service, after having agreed to do it, uh, this man got lost in the maze of back roads there in the hills of Kentucky. And when he finally did arrive, it was almost an hour after the service was to be held. Uh, The funeral director had already left. Only the grave diggers remained, and they had stopped their working to eat lunch. He quickly got out of his car. He apologized to them for being late, and he walked over to view down into the grave at the side of the grave, and as he looked into the hole that they were in the process of digging, he saw that there was no coffin there. Instead, it was already covered with the vault lid. And not knowing what else to do, um, he took his bagpipes from his car and he began to play as he was requested to do. And it wasn't long before the workers who were eating their lunch put down their lunchers and they actually came over to where the bagpipe player was playing next to the gravesite. And this lone bagpiper played out there in the back hills of Kentucky. He really played out his heart for this poor homeless man. And as tradition, after playing several minutes, different songs, He finished with a haunting melody, as many do, uh, of Amazing Grace. And as he was playing that song, the workers who gathered around him uh, began to weep. And at their weeping, he began to weep also. And when this whole emotional scene had finally come to an end, the song was over, he packed up his instrument simply, and he started walking back to his car, knowing that he had come to do he did what he, he had come to do and he accomplished his task, and his heart was full. And that's when he heard one of the workers break the silence of the solemn moment for the first time. And frankly, he was kind of startled by what he heard. The worker said, I ain't never seen nothing like that before, and I've been digging septic tanks for 30 years. Now think about that for a moment. The setting, the environment, had given this man every indication that this was, in fact, the funeral where he was to play his bagpipes. But as he learned, that didn't mean that was really what was going on over there in that piece of land. And the point is simply this, appearances can be very deceiving. And as I thought about that story and decided to relate it to you, it was Because it occurred to me that the same thing is often true when it comes to the church. You can have the right setting. You can have the right environment. People can come and do normal activities that are typically done in a church and yet still not really have a church. It can look right. It can smell right. It can be everything that a church looks like it ought to be and yet still not really be what it appears to be you can also have what purports to be a biblical church and yet that may not be the reality it's absolutely i believe imperative that we understand what a biblical church really is and that's the subject matter for tonight For the last few weeks, we've been considering the hallmarks of a biblical church and borrowed that term, hallmark, from the Goldsmiths Hall in London that basically evaluated precious metals and tested them to make sure that they were genuine, and if they were found to meet the standard of genuineness, the Goldsmiths Hall in London would put their hallmark on that piece of metal, and that mark of genuineness came to be called the hallmark. Well, we're looking at the hallmarks of a biblical church. What makes a biblical church genuine? And I invite you to turn once again to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We looked at verse 14 the last several weeks, and Paul was writing to Timothy, his young pastor, disciple in the faith, and he says, I'm writing these things to you this is the first letter that, Timothy, that Paul wrote to Timothy, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, and Paul apparently thought he probably most likely would be, I write, so that you will know, Timothy, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul wanted Timothy to know the principles by which he... And others should conduct himself in the life of the church. And Christ has told us in the New Testament how to do church. We don't have to come up with another creative way how to do church. We must conduct ourselves in the way that he taught us to. The church must have what we call a biblical uh, philosophy of ministry. This is a set of non negotiable principles that guide the decisions and the ministry of any church. And we find these biblical principles. woven throughout three letters in the New Testament, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, known as the pastoral epistles. And these were letters that Paul, the apostle, wrote to these young pastors, Timothy and Titus. And he wrote to encourage them in the ministry. But he gave them at least five essential hallmarks of a biblical church. And remember, we've gone through some of these already. First week, we looked at a high view of God. A biblical church must have a high view of God. Secondly, a high view of Scripture. Thirdly, last week we looked at a biblical view of man. What does it mean to be a human? And then tonight we're going to look at a biblical view of church. A biblical view of the church. And those hallmarks are always present whenever you have a truly biblical church. The last one we'll look at next week is the central place of Christ and the gospel. But today we're going to look at the fourth one. And that is a biblical view of the church. Well, what does that mean, to have a biblical view of the church? What does it mean? I put there in your outline, to have a biblical view of the church means that the leadership intentionally structures church life to reflect what the Bible teaches. The leadership intentionally structures the life of the church to reflect what the Bible teaches the church should be. That's what it means to have a biblical view of the church. But let's look down at that definition a little further and define it a little further. And there's there's certain things that should reflect what the Bible teaches a church should be. There's certain principles, there's certain guiding thoughts in the scriptures. And the first one is this, it must be a church. (laughs) It seems kind of obvious. It must be a church versus, say, just a simple gathering of Christians. It must be a church. If it's going to be a biblical church, obviously, yeah, you have to consider it a church. That word church in the New Testament, ekklesia in the original Greek, simply means assembly or called out assembly. So the church then is not a building. It's not the building we're meeting in tonight. If this building, God forbid, were to be destroyed by fire or flood or tornado or something, uh, Grace Bible Church would still exist. This property is not the church. I know we say, oh, we're we're coming to church, but in reality, we're the church on the way to meet. The church is, in fact, the gathering, the assembly of Christians. But this raises really the the question, um, Christians often gather together for a variety of reasons in various ways, various groups. We get together for worship, prayer, fellowship, um, other kinds of concerts, things like that. But we don't typically call those events the church. What makes the church different? What distinguishes a church? That's the fundamental question as opposed to a Bible study or as opposed to an organization like BSF or Christian Businessmen's Association. What makes a church a church and those organizations not a church? Well, theologians have basically, for the past 2,000 years, the history of the church have identified three distinguishing marks of a church versus just a Christian gathering. Where these marks are present, you have a church. Number one, a mutual commitment to be a church. There must be a mutual agreement to join together as a local manifestation of the universal church. In other words, one of the distinctions of a church is the express purpose of meeting together to fulfill the role of a church, intentionally. We're going to be a church. Uh, Secondly, the second distinguishing mark of a church is that the a church is, it has regular corporate worship on the Lord's Day. A church is not just intentionally a group of people or Christians meeting to be the church, but secondly, they meet for corporate worship on the Lord's Day. And throughout the New Testament, you find throughout church history, what made the church distinct from other Christian gatherings was the commitment to come together for corporate worship on the Lord's Day to be A church and that's why sometimes it you look at the schedule of churches sometimes churches work overtime to free up their congregation from having to do anything on Sunday so they'll have services on Friday and Saturday and whatever and you got Sunday free Uh, well that's never meant to be the case in the New Testament what frames up a church in the New Testament times was that they were committed to meet on the first day of the week the Lord's Day for worship Number three, this third distinguishing mark of a church is that there is a consistent practice of the ordinances of the church, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper. The consistent practice of ordinances. There's two ordinances. There's two practices within the local church that the Lord himself established. One was believer's baptism. He gave us an example that we should follow in that example, and that's one of the first things a believer should do is to be biblically baptized. It doesn't mean sprinkled. It means you go down into the water, you're put under the water, you're baptized, and you're brought back up as a picture of yourself dying and then being raised to newness of life in Christ. And then also the Lord's Supper. Wayne Grudem writes this in his systematic theology book. Once an organization begins to practice baptism in the Lord's Supper, it is a continuing organization and is attempting to function as a church by contrast groups who do not administer baptism and the lord's supper signify that they are not intending to function as a church we call those groups para church organizations if a local bible study began baptizing its new converts he goes on to say and regularly participating in the lord's supper these things would signify an intention to function as a church And it would be difficult to say why that Bible study should not be considered then the church. So it must be a a church versus a simple Christian gathering. And it must have those distinguishing marks. The intentionality to be a church, the regular corporate worship on the Lord's Day, and the consistent practice of the ordinances, baptism, believer's baptism, and the Lord's Supper. If it's going to be a biblical church, it has to start by being a church, and those things are reality. Secondly, it must be a true church versus a false church. It must be a true church versus a false church. Not only must it be a church, but it must be a true church, as opposed to what you would say a mere shadow of the true Christian faith. And this is, once again, absolutely critical When you travel down through the south in the Bible Belt, you'll go through certain sections of our country where there's a steeple, there's a cross on every corner, there's a church on every corner. But you quickly discern, after maybe you live there a while or you visit there a while, that every place that calls itself a church is, in fact, not a true church. Just because it has the word Christian in its charter, just because it has the word Christian on the sign, just because it may make that claim, doesn't mean it is truthful that this is the true church. These are, there are, there are true churches of Jesus Christ, and guess what? There are false churches. There are false churches. To be be a biblical church, you have to be a true church. So the obvious question is, well, how do we know? How do how can we tell the difference between a true and a false church, right? If they're both claiming to be Christian, they're both using the same lingo, they say they both believe the same Bible, how do you know what is this divide? Well, there is a great divide between a uh, weak, disobedient, doctrinally, corrupt, true church on one hand, and... A false church on the other and it comes down to this if a false church it is a false church when it denies the truth about jesus or the gospel it's a false church when it denies what the bible says about jesus and the gospel if you deny the truth about jesus or the gospel it is a false church first john 4 1 john writes beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from god because why many false prophets have gone out into the world What's John saying? Don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe everything that says it's a Christian. Don't don't imagine for a moment that everything that says it believes and loves Jesus Christ actually does. That's what he's saying. And he goes on there in verse 2. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. In other words, here's how you know if it's truly a true church. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you heard that is coming and now is already in the world. You hear what John is saying here. He's saying that when you take the label Christian, when you take the label Christian, it's important to understand when you take the label followers of Christ, that you understand there are, are two different things going on under that label. There are those who are following the true Christ. And it's distinguished here by those who have an accurate doctrine of Christ. They're not denying His deity. They're not denying His humanity. They're not denying anything that's important to the person of Christ. They're supporting what the scripture says about him. They're they're following the true Christ. And then you have those who seem to be following Jesus. They look like they're following Jesus. They say that they're following Jesus. They actually say that they love Jesus. But in fact, they are embracing the spirit of antichrist. What's that mean? It means they're opposed to Christ. They're the total opposite of what it means to be following Christ. So when a church that claims to be Christian denies the truth about Jesus Christ, either his deity or his humanity, or any other key part of the person or work of Christ, mark it down, this is not the true church. It's not, this diff- it's not that difficult to understand. That is a false church. It's not for Christ. It is anti-Christ. And you see the same thing in 2 John 7-10. Uh, to 10. If you look over there, he says, For many deceivers, John writes, have gone out into the world. For those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. Now remember, in the first century, the, the, really the, 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 the point of orthodoxy, the touch-tone of orthodoxy about the person, it all, it all floated around the person of Jesus Christ. There were those who denied that Christ was really human. They denied that he came as a human being. And you have all kind of different beliefs on that. And you have to be on the alert for. But in the first century, that was it. People denied that he truly came as a human. But the larger point here is if somebody is wrong about Christ, if somebody has it wrong about who Christ is, it says in verse 7, this is the deceiver and the antichrist. And then he goes on and he says, guard yourself. He says, be careful, verse 9, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the correct teaching of Jesus Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the correct teaching about Jesus Christ, he says, he has both the Father and the Son. And this is how serious it is. Look at what he says in verse 10. If anyone comes to you, remember now, this is a person claiming to be a Christian, anyone. They, they're claiming to be a Christian. They're claiming to be a brother or sister in Christ. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what teaching? The correct teaching about Jesus Christ. Do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deed. In other words, don't accept him as a brother. Don't say, oh, God bless you, brother, or sister, we're all one, everything's wonderful. Uh, don't treat them that way. You have to be kind as a Christian. You have to be gracious, but don't act like they're your brothers and sisters because they've embraced not the spirit of Christ, but the spirit of the Antichrist. So a true church becomes a false church when they deny the person of Jesus Christ. A true church becomes a false church, not only by denying the person of Jesus Christ, but also, secondly, by denying the means of salvation. In other words, the way a person becomes right with God. And for that, if you turn over to Galatians chapter 1, you see here what Paul writes in verses 6 to 8. In Galatia, the churches uh, there, uh, in the churches, there were what we call Judaizers. These were Jews who had believed in, in Jesus. Ostensibly, everything looked great, but if you were set to sit down next to a Judaizer in the first century, you would have thought, that he was one of you. He was one of the church. You would have thought that he's just like you. Everything was the same. He said he believed in Jesus. He said he loved Jesus. He celebrates the cross. He talks about his resurrection, all those things. But see, here was the problem. The Judaizers added one thing. They said, you know what, in order to be right with God... You not only had to believe the gospel, but you also had to what? Keep the law, they said. So they added to the gospel. And that's how you're made right with God, by keeping the law. Um, And and Paul said uh, this about it in verse 6, Galatians 1, 6. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. In other words, they're not preaching the same gospel which is really not another, in other words, Paul says there's really not another gospel, there's not two good newses, there's not two ways to come to Christ, there's only one. But these people take it and they distort it, he says. Only there are some who distort the gospel of Christ. And then he says this in verse 8, but if we, he includes himself, he includes anybody, any of the apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, let him be... Uh, accursed, let him be damned, let him go to hell, it says basically. Very serious. Verse 9 says, as we said before, and I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, let him be anathema, let him be accursed, let him be damned. So Paul took this very seriously. So you don't want to mess around with Jesus Christ, you don't want to change who he is, you don't want to Uh, deny his humanity or deny his deity, and you don't want to change the message of Christ, the gospel. And even over in chapter 2 of Galatians, verse 4, he refers to people who do this as enemies of the gospel, as false brethren. He's saying they don't belong to the church. So if a church embraces a, you could say this, a false Christ or a false gospel, it is, guess what, a false church. No doubt about it. That would include all of the cults, by the way. The Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses, the Latter day Saints, all of them. They embrace a different Jesus from what Scripture teaches. They have a different gospel. They have a a different means of being right with God. They say it's works based. This is not the true church. This is the false church. Same thing of Jehovah Witnesses who deny the deity of Christ. It's not a true expression of Christianity. Um, It's a a false church. It's the spirit of Antichrist according to John. You could even say that's somewhat True of the Roman Catholic Church today at one point the Roman Catholic Church was Somewhat a true church, but today it's a false church. Why what happened because it denies it doesn't deny the person of Christ They're right on the person of Christ for the most part. They don't deny his deity or his humanity They have it wrong. that He's still hanging on the cross But that plays into them tampering with the message of the gospel. Uh, They don't believe the biblical message of the gospel. Now, there are many genuine believers in the Roman Catholic system, I'm sure. But they are not believers if they truly understand what the Catholic Church teaches about salvation. Uh, They believe that salvation is a, a work. It's something you have to earn from God. Uh, Liberal Protestant denominations and churches are not true churches either. Um, They're false churches because they don't believe usually in Christ or the Bible. They don't believe in either one, and yet they'll call themselves a church. Wayne Grudem writes this, once again, quoting him. He says, When there is assembly of people who take the name Christian but consistently teach that people cannot believe their Bibles, indeed, a church whose pastor and congregation seldom read their Bibles or pray in any meaningful way and do not believe or perhaps even understand the gospel of salvation by faith in Christ alone, then how can we say that this is a true church? Obvious answer, we can't because it's not. To be a biblical church, first of all, you have to be a church as opposed to a simple Christian gathering. It must meet all the criteria there. It must be a true church, secondly, instead of a false church. And then thirdly, and we'll spend some time here, this is what we want to really talk about, it has to follow the scriptural pattern for church versus some man-made pattern. And this is what we have today in our society society today. We have very few churches that follow the scriptural pattern versus some man-made pattern that they came up for church growth. And this is what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 3.15. So if you turn over there, you ask the question, what are the elements that make up this biblical pattern? How do we know this biblical pattern exists? How do we live this biblical pattern out? What are the key components uh, to this, the essential elements, you could say, of this biblical pattern for the church and church life? Well, there's several here, but first of all, if you're going to be a biblical church following the scriptural pattern, then you must understand the purpose of the church. The first one is you have to understand the purpose of the church. One of the key ways in which a church begins to lose its focus is when it goes wrong on the question, why do we exist as the church? If you get that wrong, then it just goes downhill from there. Uh, You can go out and ask people, even that go to church, what is the purpose of the church? And you'll get a wide variety of answers. Now, painting with a very broad brush here, there are a lot of different views in our culture today. Even within Christendom, you have what we call the seeker-sensitive church. Um, And this basically says, well, the purpose of the church exists to involve the unchurched in the weekly life of the church. In other words, we want our Sundays, our gatherings in the church to be filled with unbelievers. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. It it never indicates that, ever. Um, Now, ideally, their, their motivation is good, I think. They have the ultimate goal of seeing these unbelievers come to faith in Christ. But they believe the purpose of the church, why it exists, is that on Sundays and on the weekends, we want unchurched people to become involved in what's going on in the church. That's the seeker-sensitive movement. Secondly, there's another group, the emergent church movement. It's kind of dissipated now. It's kind of broken up into a bunch of different things. But, but they, they would say that the purpose of the church is to engage the culture. We're all about engaging the culture, the culture of this world. And we're here to engage the culture and thereby to win friends, influence people, make changes. That's what they desire to do. So they're constantly changing their approach to adjust to whatever the culture's doing. They're trying to be relevant to the culture. A lot of times you'll see them dress a certain way or act a certain way because they're trying to be relevant. Thirdly, there's a group known as the Religious Right. And they would say the church exists to really change the culture through the political process. So a church that's involved in the religious right movement would always be involved in politics. And, (coughs) you know, we want to speak to politics when elections come. We want people to vote biblically and according to the word of God for the right candidate and all that. But these people carry it a little bit too far. And so they're very political in nature. And then you have Fourthly, what we would call the liberal church. And they would exist, they would say the purpose that we exist is for the social gospel. And what they mean by that is they're not teaching the message of salvation. They're not teaching the biblical message of individual rescue from the wrath of God. But rather, they're teaching Christianity as as a way, as a mechanism, as a means to effect a change in people's earthly circumstances. They're all focused on what goes on here on the earth. Uh, so we have to get rid of poverty. So therefore, we have to have a feeding program. We have to feed these poor people. Um, we have to educate the illiterate. Uh, not to say that those things in and of themselves are not admirable. They're, they're good things. or good, good works to do. But that's not the true gospel. I remember I was invited to a luncheon down at Red Morton Square by a local pastor. And I didn't really want to go, but I thought, okay, I'll go. And I went and at this luncheon, they had a... Um, some guy from washington dc come and speak to a group of pastors here in redwood city and he got up and he said boy we're so glad you're here because you know in our society today uh, most of our children are illiterate and it's really contingent upon the church to take time to carve time away from whatever you're doing to teach these children how to read and i'm sitting there going well, what is that i mean that's an admirable thing nobody wants to have a child who can't read But at the same time, is that the work of the church? Is that what we're called to do? And I remember throughout this presentation just feeling uneasy about all this. And finally, there was a point where I could ask a question. And people asked different questions about the program and how it would fit in the church. And finally, I put my hand up. They called on me. And I asked this simple question. Well, are we restricted in what we can read and have the children read as we teach them how to read? Well, what do you mean? I said, well, could I take my Bible and say, here, let's read through the first chapter of Philippians and teach them how to read? Wow, you couldn't do that. That's kind of crossing the line. And the other pastors were pretty much uh, surprised I would even ask such a thing. But see, that's where we've come from. Uh, It's an admirable thing to teach a child how to read, but that's not the goal of the church. That's not what we're called to do. I would rather have uh, a young child who can't read but know the gospel and understand the gospel and be assured they're going to heaven one day than have someone who can read and not be assured to go to heaven. Um, That's not the purpose of the church, to teach children how to read. Um, The question is, what does the Bible say is the purpose of the church then? If it's not those things, what is it? Well, 1 Timothy 3.15, the verse we've been looking at, tells us. He tells Timothy, I write to you so that you will know how to conduct uh, himself in the household of God, which is the living, which is the church of the living God, he says. You need to underline that in the household of God. That's his point. The church is intentionally God's church. It's, it's by God's design. It's his household. It's his family, the household of God. The church is to be a community in which God's adopted children grow and they flourish. That's the purpose of the church. It's the household of God. It's God's house. It's God's home. Not this building, not this property, but you as individuals. You make up the church. You are the people of the church. We are the household of God. We are the family of God. And so the, the church is to be the community of God's adopted children growing together in love with one another and following and loving their father. That's the church. But notice, he even goes on further in verse 15, and he adds uh, something else there. He says, the church of the living God, and then he says this, the pillar and the support of the truth. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago uh, when we talked about high view of scripture. But just to remind you, that word support there, it's only used here in the New Testament. It describes a foundation. He says, the church is like a foundation. And it, and it offers pillars, buttresses of support for the truth of God. So what's the purpose here? It's The church is to support the truth of God. That is the Bible. That's why the church exists. We need to get that into our mind. The church is, by God's design, a community of people who've been adopted by him, who are learning to grow together as a family as a family, and toward him as our father. And yeah, you know what? We do exist to worship. We do exist to pray. We do exist to have Bible studies. We do exist to evangelize, to sing, and to have fellowship together. All of those things are essential to the life of the church. But in the end, the big picture is simply this. The church is the community of the redeemed. It's for saved people. It's the community of God's people. And our goal is to support the truth of God. That's the purpose of the church. And a biblical church understands that, and they live that out in reality. Well, there's another, you could call, a central element of the scriptural pattern. And, and basically, uh, the, the second one is not just understanding the, the biblical purpose of the church, but installing the right leadership for the church, installing the right leadership for the church. Uh, This is part of that biblical pattern for a biblical church. Now, we all understand Ephesians 5 says Christ is the head of the church. He is the leader of the church. It's his church. It's not ours. And you go to Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, and you see Christ not only is the head over the universal church, but also all of the church, uh, that Christ is the the head of individual local churches, because he talks about seven churches there in Asia Minor. And he discusses with them their positives or negatives. And and so Christ is the head of the church, whether it's the universal church or the local church. There's no question about that. But in each local church, Christ has delegated that authority to lead the local church to qualified leaders. And if we're going to be a biblical church, we need to install those qualified leaders in leadership. And the obvious question is, well, how do you recognize qualified leaders in the church? Who qualifies to be a leader in the church? Well, guess what? We don't have to guess. Once again, the Bible provides the answer. Uh, The epistles to the pastors here, 1st, 2nd, Timothy and Titus tell us all about it. And there's many criteria here, but the first one is they have to be men. They have to be men. Now, I know that I just went where angels fear to go, right? But the Bible speaks this, right? And we have to be true to what Scripture says. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, right there in the pastoral epistles, Paul couldn't make it any clearer. He begins chapter 2 by saying that he wants um, prayers to happen when the church is gathered together, uh, and men are to lead that, verse 8. And then he says in verse 9, let me talk about the woman for a second. He says, when the church gathers likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly. Ladies, you have a responsibility in the church. It's written right out there for you. While you're not ultimately responsible for what goes on in the hearts of men, you are responsible to take the proper steps, not to be a stumbling block to them. In other words, you're to dress modestly. You're to dress discreetly. You're not to dress in a way when we gather together that... um, intentionally calls attention to yourself as an object of attention and he gives examples of that instead of doing that you adorn yourself with good works as is proper for women making claims to godliness but then he touches on the role of women in the church all the way down in verse 11 he says a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness Now, when you read that at first, it almost seems like a negative kind of thing, like how horrible is that? And some perceive it that way. But you have to understand what was going on in the first century, because neither among the Jews nor the Greeks were women really thought to receive any instruction whatsoever. They were just left out of the picture altogether. And so what Paul is saying is Hey, listen, women have a right to learn. Women have a right to grow spiritually. Women are to be exposed to the teaching of Scripture. They're to receive instruction. That was revolutionary. It's kind of like when the Taliban over there, they take over and they take they, they all the women out of the education institutions. And they say, we don't want you being educated at all. You don't have a place for that. That's not your place. Um, they're to receive instruction instruction, but Paul says they need to do it with a submissive spirit. Now, think about it. In verse 12, he he specifically says, I do not allow a woman to teach (coughs) or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. What's he saying here? He's saying in the life of the church, in the life of the church, very specifically, that's the context, I don't want women teaching men. And I don't want women exercising a role of authority over men. What's he saying? He's saying a woman is not to be in a place of leadership in the church to which men are accountable to her. God says, no, that's not my model. I don't want that happening. Very plain. It's very clear. Now, there are evangelical feminists who will argue that all day long and they they say basically their argument is well that's a cultural situation and that only would prove true in the first century in Ephesus but look at how Paul argues this point he uses two bases for his argument and neither of them having to do anything with the current culture in Ephesus but they go all the way back to the beginning of time when God created things verse 13 he says first of all look at the created order He says, first of all, Adam was created first and then Eve. In other words, when God created us, he made man and then he made woman as a complement to men. That was what God did. That doesn't demean women in any way. It's just that they have a different role to play. And Paul uses that to argue that there should be only male leadership in the church. But then he gives a second reason. Uh, Verse 14, and that's the fall. Not just the created order, but the fall, he says, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And so the created order and the fall is the basis for which he argues this practice of men in leadership in the church. And by the way, verse 15, he even says that even though women bear the stigma of of having been deceived, Eve was was Uh, Eve being deceived, and then convincing Adam to eat of the fruit with her, that stigma can be removed by instead of leading people into sin, by leading a godly offspring into faith in Christ. And then he goes on into chapter 3, and he makes it equally clear. Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. That's the same command that's repeated in Titus chapter 1. It's hard for a woman to be the husband of one wife. Well, maybe not today in our culture, the way we redefine terms, but in the Word of God, it's very clear. And so the leadership in the church must be male. That doesn't mean that women are second-class citizens. Um, Sometimes they're even more capable than men in the area of leadership. But this is the pattern that God set up for us. Uh, Thirdly, there will also be a... A plurality of male leadership a plurality. It won't be a one man does all show It's not a CEO mentality and you see this in first Timothy chapter 5 uh, Timothy is serving in in one local church. They're the church of Ephesus But there are elders who rule the church even though he's the pastor there's elders and by the way you see the same thing the letter to the church of Ephesus and uh, the, the elders who rule well, he says elders plural And then down in verse 20, he says if there are elders who need to be disciplined, plural once again, uh, rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest who, the rest of the elders, there's more than one, may also be fearful of sinning. So there were in this one church a plurality of godly men leading the church. And you see that in Titus 1 as well. He says, uh, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should what set in order, what remains and appoint elders, not a elder, but elders. So you had these churches, but they had multiple leaders. They believed in a plurality of biblical leadership. And you say, well, what are the biblical qualifications for church leadership? How do we find out who these people are? Well, once again, the Bible doesn't leave it to chance. Uh, First Timothy three, Titus one, uh, shows us there. Turn to First Timothy 3 and you'll see this. There's basically four, uh, you can call them basic qualifications given for leaders if they're going to serve in the local church. First of all, they all start with C to make it easy. First of all, there must be a craving. There must be a desire. It says it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires, that means reaching out for something, uh, leaning forward, leaning into it, trying to grasp something. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he is. It is a fine work he desires. That word "desires" means to set one's heart upon, to crave, to desire. And so, the first qualification to be a biblical leadership, to be in biblical leadership in the church, is that you have to have a desire. You have to have a craving to do it. If you have to bring someone uh, kicking and screaming into eldership in a local church, he's already disqualified. And and by the way, he desires both the office, the position, okay, and the work of being an elder, of being a pastor. The study, the counseling, the praying, the dealing with people's issues in their life. He has to desire both. There's a craving. Not just the position. but There's also a work that goes along with it. Secondly, then, They also have to have not just a craving, but the right character. And here, once again, in 1 Timothy 3, as well as Titus 1, there are lists of the character qualifications. We're not going to go into all these. We don't have time. But 18 different character qualifications when you put the two lists together. Um, And and this describes the man for biblical leadership within the church. Not in perfection. Once again, you don't look at these qualifications and say, oh, you have to be perfect in every one of these qualifications. No. Each one of these character qualifications is not concerned about your perfection as a man, but your direction. Are these qualities describing the direction of this individual's life? Nobody's perfect. We all have issues. So there must be a craving. There must be character. Thirdly, there must be capacity there must be capacity. If a man's going to be qualified, he has to have certain capacities specifically to serve as an elder. It lists two capacities. First of all, verse 2 tells us there he has to be able to teach. He has to be able to teach. And then if you look over at Titus 1, verse 9, here's how Paul puts it to Titus. He says, so that he will be able here it is, both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So that teaching has two as- aspects to it, to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now look back at chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. He implies that the elder has the skill to teach. He must be able to teach. In Titus, Paul implies that he must have the knowledge both to teach God's people and the knowledge to rebuke and confront and correct error. So there has to be both the skill to teach and the necessary knowledge to teach the Word of God. These are necessary things for any leadership, any elder level uh, qualification. So you must have the capacity to, che- to teach. Secondly, there's also, he must be able to manage, it says. 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, it says he manages his own household well. You have to be able to manage. Not only to teach, but able to lead, able to manage people. And even in your own life, how do you manage your own life? What does that look like? There's one other qualification here given in 1 in Timothy 3. Not only craving character and capacity, but thirdly, the fourth C is confirmation. They must be confirmed by the church. You don't just appoint somebody and say, "Well, now they're an elder. No, if in our church, if, if someone were to come to Ken and I, and by the way, that's how this works. You, you, you have pressed upon your heart by God the desire to be involved in the leadership of our church, and you desire to be an elder, well, you come and we would evaluate you, see if you're able to teach and skilled to manage and all these things, and, and then um, we would put your name out among the congregation. The congregation would look at the name and say, yeah, I see that. I see those qualities in that person. And yes, I, I, would, I would want them to be an elder in our church. They confirm what is obvious. And uh, verse 10 of chapter 3, 1 Timothy, it says, these men, um, the deacons, must watch the word also, also first be tested also first be tested. What does that mean? The elders, the one who just came before, have also been tested. It doesn't say they're directly the elders, but by implication, you can can understand that. In other words, the congregation has to affirm the elders, and the congregation has to affirm that the man has the other three. He has the desire, the craving, he has the character, and he meets those qualifications, and he has the capacity to teach and manage. And when the elders and the congregation come together and confirm that, And when he meets the test, and the elders present him publicly as an elder in the church. So Christ mediates his rule of the church through men, through a group of men, and through a group of men who are biblically qualified. So a biblical church will have a biblical view of the church's purpose. A biblical church will have a biblical view of the church's leadership. And thirdly, it will follow the right plan for the church it will follow the right plan. You say, well, what is that? Once again, the pastoral epistles tell us so. Um, It's in there, but it's kind of more spread out in those, but if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, it's very condensed. Paul wrote all these books, and so here, if you look at Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, here's Christ's plan for how the church works. He says in verses 11 and 12, he gave gifted men to the church. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets. These were in the early days of the church when they were laying the foundation for the church. These men gave us revelation. He gave, they gave us the word of God. Uh, these offices, we would say, are not uh, in place anymore. We don't have apostles in that sense anymore um, to set up the church. The church has already laid upon the, the uh, foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And then he says... And some as evangelists and some as pastor teachers. Pastor teacher is just another uh, title for the office of elder. Uh, That's what I would call myself as a pastor. I'm a pastor teacher. Um, And that's the office of of shepherd or overseer or elder. Uh, You also have a shepherd teacher, literally what it says. He's a shepherd teacher. And you go on there to verse 12, and it says, these gifted men have what? Been given to the church. Why? Why would God give these men to the church? For the equipping of the saints. Well, guess who the saints are? That's you. <laughs> That's the people who are members of the church. Well, well why? what's he going to equip them for? He says, unto the work of service. In other words, see, in a church, it's not the elders doing the work of service. It's not up to Ken and I to do the work of service. It's up to us to build up the body of Christ so that you can do the work of service. So let's just simplify it. Here is Christ's plan for the church. Um, First of all, Christ appoints the leaders of the church. Secondly, the leaders equip the members of the church. Thirdly, the members accomplish the service of the church. And then finally, verse 12 ends with the outcome will be the growth of the church. Not just numerically, but spiritually. When this happens, when, when Christ appoints the leaders and the leaders equip the members and the members do the, the work of the service, the church grows. The building up of the body of Christ, that's what he says. That it's always been Christ's plan for the church. And every time, in every situation, it doesn't change. Culture doesn't change it. Time doesn't change it. A biblical church will understand this and they will follow this plan. Now, there's one final element here that we have to discuss, and this is involving the scriptural principle. um, And that is we must preserve the purity of the church. Preserve the purity of the church. This is, is one of the scriptural principles, scriptural patterns for the church for a biblical church. You have to preserve its purity. Well, how do you preserve the purity of the church? Well, we do it in a couple ways. We do it by confronting false teaching. And Paul does that throughout his pastoral epistles. We're not going to take time to read it, but he tells us in, in 1 Timothy 4, one. I just want you to know that the Spirit is explicitly informing me that in the latter times, um, some will apostatize. Some will fall away from the faith. In other words, you're going to have problems. They're going to They'll, they'll connect to the church, they'll look like they're part of the church, it looks like they're believers, but then they'll all abandon all of that. Well, how does that happen? It tells us paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines. Um, false teaching, basically. And we see that all over the place today. Okay, and so we don't we really even need to go into that, we went into all that false teaching when we went through the book of, of Jude. So to build a church requires the teaching of the truth week in and week out. This is something Martin Lloyd-Jones taught in his, wrote in his book, Preachers and Preaching. He says, um, you can raise money, you can build a crowd, but what you can't do is really build a church. To build a church requires the teaching of the truth week in and week out. See, and at the same time you're teaching truth, you have to be addressing error. You have to preserve the purity of the church by addressing false teaching. Um, also, you have to employ church discipline. You have to practice church discipline. And that's pointed out in, in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and in the uh, pastoral epistles over and over again. Uh, he points out two gentlemen hymenaeus and alexander who might hand it over to satan paul says so that's the same language that paul uses in first uh, corinthians 5 talking about somebody that they disciplined in that situation and uh, it's it's very important that church discipline is dove, done lovingly and graciously but firmly and uh, church discipline is carried out across the board And you don't show a respecter of persons. You know, if an elder falls into sin, they need to be under church discipline. If a layman falls into sin, they need to be under church church discipline. It meets the criteria to be a true church as opposed to a false church. If you embrace false teaching and you embrace sin within the local church, it's probably a false church. Well, how is this demonstrated in the church? How is this made manifest? First of all, you have to ask yourself, if you're going to a church, does it meet the criteria of a church instead of just a Christian gathering? Are they practicing the ordinances? Are they a true church instead of a false church? Are the primary attenders believers? Because it is the, the household of God. Number four, does it take seriously its responsibility to guard the truth? Do they have a doctrinal statement? If you go to a church and they don't, aren't willing to share with you their doctrinal statement, run. <laughs> That's my word to you, run. Number five, are there a plurality of male leadership? Men that make up the leadership of the church. Now, we're a small church. We just have two elders here, okay? But over the, the, the course of ministry here, we've had four, five, six elders at times, and people move and people come. That's fine. But you know what? It's not just one man is what the point is. You have a plurality of biblical leadership. And we're always looking to add to that number as God leads. But it's God who puts it upon your heart. We don't talk you into it. Uh, the elders will focus their ministry, number six, on leading and teaching the Bible and leading in prayer. They'll do those things. Instead of trying to be the CEO of, a, of an organization, they'll be shepherds. Um, number seven the focus of the corporate gathering will be on worship and equipping the saints mutual edification when we meet on a sunday the primary purpose is not evangelism that's not why we meet now it's great that you invite your non-christian friends to come and fellowship and, and and somehow be part of our service on on sunday mornings but if they're not believers they can't worship god If they're not believers, they don't have the Holy Spirit to understand the word of God. So they're going to feel a little out of place. And that's okay because they'll be hearing the truth. And maybe God will use that truth that they're hearing and convict their heart. And they'll come to Christ and they'll be saved. But that's not our primary purpose. Our primary purpose is to edify the saints. That's what we're called to do, to equip the saints for the work of service. Number eight, a large percentage of the membership will be using their spiritual gifts. This is very important. This is why I'm just so pleased to be part of this church because a majority of the people every week use their spiritual gifts somewhere. People are serving. They're not sitting on the sidelines. The church, ninth will consist consistently confront false teaching and false teachers. We're not afraid to name names, both publicly and privately, if we need to do that. Um, if you're part of a church and you attend for six months to a year, and you never hear anything negative about false teachers run because there's something wrong, especially in today's culture. Uh, And finally, number 10, it will consistently practice church discipline. And so all those things kind of make up a biblical pattern, a biblical view for the church. Amen? Amen. Well, next week we'll look at Christ and the centrality of the gospel uh, to the church. But let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can go through this study together to understand more clearly what the hallmarks of a biblical church are. And Father, we we thank you that you have called us, that you've saved us from our sins, and that we can rely on you to grow us into the men and women we need to be. And Lord, we pray that we would uh, consider ourselves blessed to be part of this church where we do teach the truth about Christ and his word and the gospel. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, draw people to our congregation who are eager to learn and grow in their Christian walk. We pray that you would draw families here with children so that we could impart uh, to these children the truths of the gospel as well. And Lord, we pray that if anyone here tonight or, or is listening to this message has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, Lord, today might be the day tonight might be the night that they cry out to you lord be merciful to me a sinner save me from my sin if you pray that prayer from a sincere heart and you throw yourself before the savior he will save you he will save you so lord we pray you bless our fellowship afterwards tonight we thank you and we pray this in jesus precious name and all god's people said amen